Well, last Sunday was the 21st anniversary of the September 11 attacks on our nation. If you were alive, I'm aware that every year fewer and fewer of you were alive when that took place. But if you were alive, you will always remember where you were when you heard the news or when you saw the images of the towers falling. In fact, a couple of you were even in the Pentagon when the third plane hit the west side of the Pentagon. Who could forget about the fourth plane and the heroic men and women who fought back against their hijackers, even as their plane went down in a desolate field in Pennsylvania. On that day, and whenever tragedy strikes, we tend to ask the same kinds of questions. Questions like, why did this happen? What could we have done to prevent this from happening? Where was God and why didn't God keep this from happening? Who's to blame for this? You see, we want answers to those kinds of questions. Answers that we feel will help us to cope with tragedy. We somehow feel better if we can identify things that should have happened and didn't happen. We feel empowered, maybe comforted even, if we can try to wrap our minds around the cause of something, that we can be comforted by the fact that here's what happened, here's why it happened, so we can make sure it doesn't happen again. We want to know where God was in the midst of suffering, in the midst of tragedy and crisis. Why didn't God stop tragedy? Why didn't God stop crisis from happening? There's always the question of responsibility as well. Who's to blame? Somehow we can make sense of tragedy better if the one who suffers has done something to deserve it in our eyes. And this is true of tragedies today. It's true of tragedies that have existed throughout all of human history. We tend to ask these same kinds of questions. So if you were listening this morning as Aaron read our text for us, you know that this is the the general theme that we find ourselves in our text this morning in Luke chapter 13. Look at verse 1 in the way our text opens for us this morning. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So imagine the context. There's a group of people who have gathered together, many of them to hear Jesus preach. Maybe they want to see some of the miracles that Jesus will do. And they approach Jesus now with news about an atrocity, about Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their very sacrifices. And we would love to have more information, more details about this, but in fact there aren't any details outside of Scripture for what happened exactly in this circumstance. It could be that the details of what happened here are, were considered too small or insignificant by the Romans, so it's not recorded. But what we do know about history, at least especially about Pilate, 
leads us to believe that this is not surprising. And Pilate was the Roman governor of the region. Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells us of a time when Pilate brought images of Caesar, idols in the likeness of Caesar, into Jerusalem, into the holy city for the people to worship. And he had them there for a time, and he only removed them after he began to see that he wasn't actually convincing the Jews to worship Caesar, but instead the Jews were willing to die, and many of them did die instead of worship Caesar. So he gave up. Another time, work was being done on an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem, and Pilate secretly planted armed men in among the workers so that whenever Some of the Jewish workers were perceived to not be doing their job, not be working as hard as Pilate thought they ought to be working. They could be immediately murdered on the spot. That's the kind of person Pilate was. Pilate was a wicked man. And it seems here that when these Galileans were offering their sacrifices to the Lord in the temple, Pilate had them killed And even as their own blood was shed, their blood was mingled, it was mixed with the blood of the very sacrifices they were offering. This is an atrocity. We don't know the motive of these people who are bringing this news to Jesus. It could be that they believe Jesus to be the Messiah. They believe Jesus was the one to come who would establish the reign of God on earth the one who would overthrow the Romans and sit on the throne of David. So they could be telling Jesus this news so that he would act. Hey, Jesus, do you know what happened? Do something. In fact, now is a great time to begin wiping out the Romans, right? What better time than now to establish your kingdom in all of its fullness here on earth? If that was their motive, it makes Jesus' response to this news even more unexpected. Look at verse 2. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Like what an unexpected response. Like, Jesus, did you hear about the incredible atrocity done to these poor Galileans? How terrible. And Jesus responds like this. Do you think that they were worse sinners because they suffered in this way? No, they weren't worse sinners. And unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And Jesus' response reflects a common thought of the day in which people believed that suffering was directly related to personal sin. In fact, maybe nowhere else in the Bible is this on such vivid display is in John chapter 9 when Jesus and his disciples are traveling along the way and they see a man who was born blind. And so they ask Jesus this ultimate like question this quandary okay if sin is a direct result of or suffering is a direct result of human sin and there's a man born blind then was this his sin 
God foreknew the sin he would commit and therefore struck him with blindness? Or is this the result of his parents' sin? So they asked Jesus that question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You remember Jesus' response to them. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus clears up any false assumptions we have that suffering is always and necessarily related to personal sin. Just because these Galileans were killed by a wicked leader wasn't because they necessarily were worse sinners. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus brings up sin at all. When someone suffers an atrocity, when someone suffers at the hands of evil, we don't even think about the victim's sin. But here Jesus does. He brings it up. And in fact, he brings up all sin. And I don't think he brings up sin so that when we encounter people who are suffering at the hands of others, our response is, well, you know, you have probably sinned too. That's not the point. Jesus brings this up because he's making a bigger statement. The point is that all death and all suffering and all sin should be a call to think about our future. All suffering, all sin, all death should cause us to pause, should cause us to stop and to consider our future, to consider eternity, consider our own sin and need to repent. D.A. Carson writes, Jesus' point is that those who are not affected by recent calamities should not assume they are innocent and therefore immune from God's judgment. You see, if we think that personal suffering is always connected to personal sin, then what happens if we're not suffering? It's easy to then begin to think, well, I must be okay with God. And it brings with it a truckload of false security, especially if our lives are fairly suffering-free. Jesus lets the air out of that false security here, doesn't he? He shows us that all death and all suffering includes a question for us, which is, am I ready to stand before the Lord? Like, Yes, these Galileans died, maybe suddenly, And yes, these 18 in Siloam died when the tower fell, and maybe suddenly, but you too will die. Are you prepared to meet the Lord? Now, as an aside, there oftentimes is a direct relationship with personal sin and suffering. Jesus isn't denying a connection between suffering and human evil. Suffering may be the direct cause of personal sin. In fact, in passages like Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28, God even gives curses for those who are disobedient to him. And as parents, don't we teach our kids, like, don't put your hand on the stove, you could be burned. And when our children do put their hands on the stove and, God forbid, are burned, we don't like withhold care from them simply because their suffering is a result of their sin, no. But we do want them to see that there's a connection between personal sin and suffering. But that's not always the case. 
Many people suffer not as a direct result of their personal sin in that moment. And here on this occasion, Jesus is less concerned with what Pilate did as he is with what God will do with those who fail to repent. He will hold us accountable for our rebellion. We will all likewise perish unless we repent, unless we turn to him by faith for forgiveness and life. I mean, it's amazing that as Jesus looks out on this crowd of people, he wants them to know that just because their blood wasn't shed by Pilate's men, they will suffer eternal death one day if they are not right with the Lord. Friends, even though the, the personal effects of sin may be delayed, They will not be escaped when we stand before the Lord, which is why Jesus says, repent. See the sign, see what happens, see this atrocity, and remember the frailty of your own life. I would imagine the people who brought this news to Jesus were probably really surprised. This is not the answer they probably expected to receive But now Jesus turns and he actually brings up an example of his own. Different example, but Jesus is going to make the same point, but he's going to make it even more vividly. Look at verse 4. Jesus said, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent... you will all likewise perish. So Jesus now brings up an example of his own. People who were gathered there brought to him an example, and now he mentions something. One from the news of his time, likely people in that day probably knew about this tower that had fallen. Again, like The situation in verse 1 with the Galileans, we don't know much about from church history or from outside sources about what exactly happened. Again, probably as the Romans saw it, this is too small of an event for them to record. But for those impacted, this would have been catastrophic. So apparently there was a tower in Siloam that fell and killed 18 people. We don't know if if it fell while it was under construction or if it stood for a long time. But either way, what we do know is that unlike the first example of an atrocity in verses 1 through 3, this clearly seems to be a catastrophe. And there is a difference. An atrocity is suffering that comes as a direct result of someone else, of someone's wickedness, of someone's sin. But a catastrophe isn't necessarily like that. In this case, there isn't evidence at all of this tower falling due to the negligence of someone else. Pilate isn't commanding his men, hey, I want you to wait, and when there are people underneath, I want you to knock down this tower. We don't have any evidence of that happening at all. These people die because of what some might call impersonal forces. It just happened. No one is directly to blame. But again, Jesus makes the same point, and he makes it clearly here that even in examples where suffering and death seem completely disconnected from sin, right? This isn't connected to Pilate's sin. 
we still ought to ask the same question, which is, am I ready to stand before the Lord? Have I repented? Because my time is coming. Now, to be clear, all sin and all suffering is connected, if we go back upstream far enough, to sin. When the triune God created the world and created humanity, you might remember that in that day, everything was good. There were no falling towers. There was no evil tyrants and leaders. But that was before Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, God, or Adam and Eve chose to be God rather than honor God as God. They rejected God's rightful place as king and creator and Lord. And instead, they crawled onto the throne themselves. And as a result, sin became a reality that we deal with every single day. Every sin, every wicked leader, every ache and pain, every natural disaster, every single death is a consequence of sin. It's a consequence of rebellion against God. The brokenness we see The groaning, as the Apostle Paul would say, that exists in our world is a direct effect of the sin that we as humans have committed in rebellion against God. It may not be personal sin. I choose to sin in this way and therefore reap the consequences. That sometimes happens. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes we reap the suffering and the negative consequences for things that we haven't directly done, but all of it comes about because of a broken world, broken by our sin. In this way, every catastrophe is not necessarily the direct result of personal human sin, but it's all a general result of human sin. It's a result of living in a broken world that we as habit as people who choose our own way rather than God's way. Isn't it kind And gracious of the Lord then, that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God himself, would choose to be born into our world and to come and to live and to die in the place of all who believe. To take on our punishment, to take on our wages, the wages of our sin, which is death. And to willingly give up his life to die our death in our place. So that all who trust in him, all who believe in him by faith, might receive a pardon for our sin. Might receive forgiveness full and free. Might receive adoption into God's glorious family. That's the point that Jesus is driving at here. Unless you look around and you see the, the effects of sin and the, the catastrophic effects and the, the atrocities that exist, and, and in all of it you recognize that this world is broken and that there is a Messiah, that there is a Savior that we must turn to before it's too late. Unless you do that, you cannot be saved. And in both of these examples... Jesus' words could not be more clear. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So that same question that Jesus implies both in verse 
3 and in verse 5 is a good question for us this morning. Have you repented? Have you turned from your sin, chiefly your sin of unbelief, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into our world and died and rose again? Are you trusting in him today by faith? And if not, what is your hope for eternity? On what are you banking your eternal soul? We would pray that you would turn. I would implore you with the words of Scripture that on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The God who made Jesus sin, although he knew no sin, so that those of us who are in Jesus Christ might become the righteousness of God. So that there would be no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. So that nothing, height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the world would be able to separate us from the love of God. Jesus' words here are shocking. They were shocking for the first audience and they are shocking to most of us as well. In fact, I think that if we were to just give verse 1... Cover up verse 2, never having heard verse 2, and we would wonder, how would Jesus respond? Hey, Jesus, have you heard about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices? The Galileans who were slaughtered and their blood was shed as they were sacrificing. How would we imagine Jesus to respond? With compassion? With concern? With brokenheartedness, oftentimes that's how Jesus does respond. Oftentimes in Scripture, Jesus does respond with compassion and with grace and with lament. But here, Jesus responds with a clear warning, which is not often the Jesus we're used to thinking about. And the warning is this, there is a judgment to come, be ready for it. See the signs, see the suffering around you and remember your death. Because like those offering their sacrifices, and especially like those killed in the Tower of Siloam, and even like those killed in the towers in New York City, you may not have time to prepare for death when it comes. Which is why the time to prepare is now. And if we think, well, that's not going to happen to me. I'm a good person. R.C. Sproul wrote, the question is not why did that tower fall on those 18 innocent people, but why didn't it fall on me? It's so easy to locate our astonishment when we see crisis in the world, to locate our astonishment in the wrong place, to wonder why do bad things happen to good people. But the more and more we read of Scripture and the more and more we are renewed, to the, to, to, we're conformed to Scripture by the renewing of our mind, the more we begin to see that from cover to cover the Bible is clear that there are none who are good. That there is no category of bad things that happen to good people. There are only two categories of people. Those who justly and rightly deserve punishment for our rebellion against the God who made us and all that is. And 
Second category would be those who rightly and justly deserve it, but have received grace and forgiveness and reconciliation back to God through Jesus Christ by faith. And in that way, we should not be surprised when tragedy strikes. We should not be shocked by atrocities that exist in our world. Should we mourn? Yes. Should we grieve? Yes. Should we lament? Yes. Should we work for justice? Yes. But we shouldn't be surprised. And every time we see those signs, it ought to be pointers that remind us or alerts like on our phone. Hey, remember, remember, remember your time to stand before the Lord is coming. Prepare now. And to this, Jesus gives us a parable to drive home the point here in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, which is gardener, right? ESV vine dresser. It's an interesting name, by the way. If you're a gardener, you should refer to yourself from now on as a vine dresser. That's for free, sorry, shouldn't have gone there. He said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure and then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So you might remember a parable is, it's a story that contains an eternal truth. Specifically, it's it's a story meant to convey a central eternal truth. So while the, the details of parables can teach us some things, parables are primarily designed to drive home one central message. And this parable is no different. A man has a fig tree in his vineyard. The problem is, although the fig tree seems to be well established, For three years he comes and it fails to produce fruit. So this fig tree is soaking up the nutrients of the soil, but it isn't producing what it's supposed to produce. So the solution that the owner has is, hey, let's just cut down the fig tree. It's not doing what it was designed to do, what it was supposed to do. He says that to the gardener. Let's cut this thing down. It's It's not producing. But the gardener isn't quite ready to quit to cut down the tree, and he tells the owner, okay, let's just give it one more year, and I'll dig around it, clear the land of any weeds, any obstacles to growth, I'll, I'll put fertilizer on it, I'll do everything I can so that this tree will produce fruit. If it produces fruit, great. If it doesn't produce fruit, we can cut it down. Now, Fig trees in the Bible are oftentimes used as symbols for Israel. The people, they are among, in fact, the most common fruit trees in all of Palestine. And multiple Old Testament texts describe Israel as a fig tree. In fact, Isaiah chapter 5 is, jot that down, you want to go there later, is perhaps one of the clearest in referencing what's going on here. Fig trees are the only kind of tree that's referenced in the Garden of Eden. They're also mentioned 
when God promises to give Israel the promised land that they inherited from the Lord. And even the fact that the vineyard's owner's fig tree is planted within his vineyard and not outside the vineyard seems to point to the fact that the fig tree represents Israel. So what's going on here? What's happening in this parable? This is a parable about warning. And here, Jesus is looking out upon Israelites, and he's warning them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Which is all the more timely, because at this moment, at this time, they were not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. In fact, later, Jesus, in Luke chapter 20, would give another parable about an owner who had a vineyard, and yet the workers of the vineyard kept all of the produce to themselves. They hoarded it, and they hid it away. And so the owner, when he would send one of his messengers to go get some of the fruit, some of the produce, and bring it back for him that was rightfully his, they would hide it, and they would beat up the servants. He kept sending servant after servant after servant, and finally he sent his own son. Sound familiar? And the servants said to themselves, hey, this is his heir. Let's kill him. And that they did. The vineyard's owner's frustration here in Luke 13 is similar to Jesus' frustration at the end of this very same chapter. In fact, in this chapter, Luke 13, in verses 31 and following, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. He laments, laments, He laments because Israel refused to repent and turn and believe. So this parable is showing us the last opportunity for Israel to repent and believe. But it's also showing all of us that there is a limit to God's patience, that he will cut down the tree that does not bear fruit, that here in this moment, in this time, There is one more chance. The owner says, wait, let's try one more thing. I will clear the ground. I'll add fertilizer. And this parable is a warning then, not only to Israel, but it's also a warning to us. It's a call to us to examine our hearts, to examine our lives. It's a reminder that we should not take the patience of God lightly. We don't know when Christ will return. It could be before the sermon is done. It could be 500 years from now. We don't know what will happen in our life. We don't know if before you have lunch today, you will die of some sort of cause. Which is why this warning is so important. Jesus says, notice the time, look at the moment, see the crisis, see the suffering, see death, and think about your own death. Here at CCF, over the last 11 and a half years, I've had the privilege to do, officiate at both weddings and funerals, and just the nature and the makeup of our congregation, I've officiated at way more weddings than funerals. And both are glorious, and both are an incredible privilege to be a part of. But sometimes people will ask, do you, do you like doing weddings better or funerals better? Funerals, hands down. 
Because in a wedding, there are so many distractions that can exist. Distractions from eternal things. Temptations to idolize the other person that you're marrying, or to idolize the floral arrangements as you're watching, or to be jealous of the bride's dress, or to be jealous of this, or to be excited for all of these other things. And marriage is a great thing, right? Marriage is a wonderful thing. We celebrate that. But in a funeral, men and women like you and me are forced to come face to face with the fact that there is a reckoning that we have to give. That we are not ultimately in control, no matter how fit we are, or young we are, or strong we are, or wealthy we are, or stable we are, or educated we are. And that's a good thing to be reminded of. And to remember that any patience on the Lord's behalf is so that we would come to repentance. These words from 2 Peter are so important. 2 Peter 3, 9 through 14. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. The Lord is not just, he's not forgetful to send Christ for us. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, remember we talked about the day of the Lord, the day of when we will be judged, and the day of, of punishment for those who are not in Christ, and the day of salvation for those who are in Christ. The day of the Lord, Peter says, will come like a thief. In other words, it will come unexpectedly. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, we could say, therefore, church of the Lord Jesus Christ, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Do you see the grace of God in his patience for us even now? It won't always be like this. The window of God's grace is only open right now. It will not remain open forever. And the events that are happening all around us, even in our world today, should be causes by which we are reminded to look at our own life and look at the future and look at our death and prepare. In the kindness of the Lord, he provides warnings like this for us. And no one loves to hear warnings. Unless we know that by heeding the warning, our eternity will be changed. And so it's kind of the Lord to give us these warnings even this morning. 2,000 years later, same warnings. That we might be prepared so that we might be ready. 
We're going to close this way this morning. There might be some of you this morning who are here who aren't prepared, and maybe you have questions. Maybe you would like to talk to someone. Maybe you'd like someone to pray with. Maybe you'd like someone simply just to bounce some things off of. If that's you, I'll be down front afterwards down here. Josh and Amy Bowen, Bowman will be down front. Nick and Bethany Rogers will be down front. We would love to talk to you. We would love to answer questions. We would love to pray with you if there are ways that we can pray for you. We'd love just to be a resource, an encouragement for you, a listening ear for you. There are also a number of people seated around you. And if you're here this morning and you have questions, or if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, but even as we met, you're thinking, you know, something is weird going on inside of me. I'd love to talk to someone about this. There are people seated all around you who would love to talk to you. They would not consider that an imposition. They would not consider that to, to be something that's a distraction. They would be thrilled to talk to you, to pray with you. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to be dismissed, and you're welcome to visit. You're welcome to talk, to introduce yourself. In fact, I would encourage you to do that to people around you. But if you'd like specifically to talk to someone this morning about anything you've heard here, or someone to pray with or ask questions of, I would encourage you just to make your way to the front. We'll be here for you. Would you stand with me? Let's close in prayer.